first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Absolutely No Adventures. Welcome to the Signature Eats Bakery. I'm Sig. We've got breads, pies, cookies, cakes, and absolutely no adventures. The creation of Destiny Howell, Absolutely No Adventures, is a fantasy unadventure story that follows Sig, the owner of the Signature Eats Bakery, as he aggressively avoids becoming embroiled in any daring quests or chosen one shenanigans, even though the universe really seems to want him to do just that. It's a subversion of the hero's journey that has a little fun with familiar fantasy tropes while still embracing them. In the first episode, The Sword in the Sheath, a knight from afar pleads with Sig to come with her, as he is the only one who can draw a magic sword that can slay a powerful evil. In the second, Wicked Lost, we meet B, who must slay a witch in order to go home. Howell is also a writer, and her middle grades novel, High Score, is coming out this summer. I spoke to Destiny remotely from her home in Florida. Tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist and creative type. I have been wanting to be a writer since I was as young as I can remember, like before mm-hmm. I can remember. When I learned to read very quickly around three, my dad was an English teacher. So mm. it was just stories, stories, stories all the time. I was a very hard kid to ground because what were they going to do? Take my books away? That's not good parenting. So like, <laughs> I just had my nose in the book all the time. The one time I can remember getting in trouble in school was because I was reading under my dad. In reading all these stories, I wanted to create my own stories like pretty quickly. So since I was in elementary school, I was always writing little stories and like entering, you know, the little contests that you can enter when you're a kid. And when I got a little bit older, I started writing longer things like short stories and then into novels. And eventually that kind of branched out to exploring other avenues for writing, which is how I kind of got into podcasting. Did you go to school for writing? Uh, haha. I went to school for a lot of things. <laughs> so I, my initial degree, my bachelor's is in English at the University of Alabama. And then I took a detour and I went to Georgetown University Law Center and spent three years or getting my law degree. And I am currently getting my MFA in creative writing from USF in Tampa. So what happened with the change to law and the change back to creative writing? <laughs> so uh, the way I was raised, it was like a very practical way. You know, mm-hmm. like you have to yeah. make sure you know where your uh, money is coming from, you know where your food is coming from. So even though I always had it in my head, I'm going to be creative, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be published someday. I also equally in my head was I'm not going to be a starving artist. That's not going to happen. Uh, I always thought, okay, what are the things that you can do to make money? If your skill is writing and it's like, oh, be a lawyer. And I was always told like as a joke, like I was a very argumentative child, like, haha, you should be a lawyer. <laughs> so it's like, all right, yeah, lawyer, I can do that. They make money and I can write on the side. Uh, on the one hand, like, yes, that is what happened. It worked out the way that I wanted. On the other hand, it was, you know, not the career that I wanted to stick with long term. So uh, when I had the opportunity to switch to the writing thing, the getting the MFA degree um, in a funded program, because again, I am not here to be a starving artist. Uh, I made the switch. I sympathize because I, I grew up uh, <laughs> as an artistic kid too. 
And then when I got into academia and I was teaching, I was advising students who were going through the theater program. And, you know, you'd always hear from them about their parents or people in their life, or sometimes it was self-imposed, but it was always, well, I also want to have something as a backup. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I understand that the, the reason why that is, is because, I know, you know, the arts, unless you're a Hollywood movie star, it, you know, it doesn't pay a whole lot. So I get it. People appreciate the art, but they don't necessarily want to like pay the big bucks for it all the time. So it's kind of hard. And like the law is a very stable career as opposed to the arts where it's just like, yeah, I write a thing. Hopefully it's good. Maybe people like it and maybe I get money for it. If you're looking for stability, there are a lot more stable careers than getting into the arts. But like, I don't love anything like I love writing. So, you know, gotta take that leap sometime. You have made some success. Now you have a, a book coming out soon? I do. It's called High Score. It's coming out on June 28th with Scholastic. And as a lifelong Scholastic book fair nerd, that yeah. was so exciting for me to hear. Like, Almost more than uh, getting the news like, oh, someone bought your book. The fact that it was specifically Scholastic that bought the book, like I was losing my entire mind over that. And this is the book that I worked on for my first year of my law job. Said like I can't just be doing one thing at any time. I have to be doing multiple things. <laughs> um, and it was always my plan to like, I can write anywhere. I can write on the side. And of course, like big high pressure legal job, it was like a little bit hard to like squirrel away the time, but I was like really excited about this idea. So I made the time. The whole idea is that it is a big Ocean's Eleven style casino heist, but it's kids. So instead of a casino, it's an arcade. And instead of stealing money, they're stealing tickets. Now, this is a middle grades novel. Um, What got you interested in that particular genre? That's always been my favorite. Like, I mean, you start off reading around there and then usually you graduate to young adult, but... I still kind of fell back on middle grade stuff a lot because I loved the adventure. It's not as bogged down with romance as young adult tends to be. I like that like in the middle grade space, there's a lot more space for just like adventure and friendships. And like, that's what I'm really interested in writing most of the time. So let's talk about your pivot into audio drama then. Where did that come from? That is also uh, something that kind of came from my legal job. If you know anything about being a lawyer, there is a lot of time spent just staring at a screen, doing sometimes very rote work very late into the night. (laughs) And, you know, so I needed something to keep myself awake while I was doing that. I kind of ended up turning to podcasts. You know, at first, a lot of it was like a D&D actual play podcast, two guys talking about weird history stuff kind of podcast. But eventually, I kind of found my way into the world of audio dramas. One of the podcasts that I can't kind of became aware of early on is Gen Z Media's The Unexplainable Disappearance of Mars Patel, which I realized, oh, there's actually not a lot of podcasts for the middle grade space. Like a lot of the podcasts that exist for that space are parenting stuff or like uh, storytelling, but like in a, I'm going to tell you a fairy tale kind of way, not in like a full cast audio drama kind of way. And I thought I could do this. This could be fun. Like I like having too many projects. Let me (laughs) think about this. So I actually very quickly, I sat down and I plotted out three seasons of middle grade, like adventure type podcast in the vein of like things that I would write, you know, as a novel. 
And like I got it done pretty quickly. And then I looked at what I had and I realized like, oh shoot, I don't know how to produce this. This is going to be so complicated. But one of the big differences between writing for a book and writing for audio drama is with a book, you get everything for free. You can have a character that shows up one time and it doesn't matter. But like in an audio drama, like that's someone who has to voice those lines. Do I need to have this character? This is like a big, complicated action scene. In a book, that's fine. Like, it's imagination. You just say whatever you want. But in a podcast, it's like someone has to audio design that, you know? This Mm -hmm. is really, really complicated. So I was like, okay, I like the story a lot. But this is like really, really complicated and ambitious for a first kind of a project. Let me shelf this for a little bit. And that uh, is kind of what led to the creation of Absolutely No Adventures. So why don't you tell me a little bit about Absolutely No Adventures in your own words? I kind of see Absolutely Adventures as being about two things. On like the face of it, on the very basic level, it is about a chosen one character who is choosing to refuse the call to adventure so that he can run his bakery, which is a much less harrowing prospect. And on the other hand, Absolutely No Adventures is about how me, the creator, Destiny Howell, is extremely into the genre of fantasy and all the associated tropes and how I have a lot of opinions about them. (laughs) Um, So those are the kind of like twin uh, pillars of the show. It is done. I'm telling you, it's not. How can it not be done? I followed the recipe exactly. And besides, how would you know? You have never even seen one before, and the toroid of dimension and despair is a feat of mundane and arcane craftsmanship beyond your mere human comprehension. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this human can comprehend that it's not done. It needs at least another ten minutes in the oven. It is done. Take a bite out of it, then. I will. Mm. 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 It is not done. So how did this story begin for you? There is actually another podcast that I really, really enjoyed called In Between. Basically, the premise of it is that it is all the stuff that happens in between like the actual adventure. Right. So it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. we just fought a dragon. And then the show is like the actual episode is we're in the end after the dragon attack debriefing what happened. I thought that was so clever, really interesting, a really like elegant solution to how do we tell a really cool story, but like cut down on like all the complicated things to do. With that in my head and kind of pivoting around, like, what is a reason that a character could be in, like, one location? What is the reason that they're just there? How can I justify that? What if he just doesn't want to leave? Like, what if he's just happy where he is and he doesn't have time for, like, whatever is going on out there? You know, a chosen one who doesn't want to go on adventures. And it kind of went from there. So the show is about Sig, who is a baker. Mm -hmm. uh, And he is also the chosen one that, for some reason... So many prophecies and uh, magical conflexes of destiny have made him the center of hundreds of stories and prophecies. Mm -hmm. Now, he is running a bakery with his assistant, Happy, who is an aberrant one. That's kind of like a demon, kind of, I assume. Kind of like a demon, yeah. I, I think in the original drafts, he was like specifically a demon. But then I was like, 
I don't want to deal with metaphysics, actually. Like, what does the existence of demons imply? And I'm just going to be, like, a little bit fuzzier with them and make him kind of like a quasi-demon eldritch being kind of a situation. But I don't have to deal with, like, the ramifications of putting a demon in this world. So in in the first two episodes, basically the the formula is people show up at the bakery, attempt to convince Sig to fulfill some destiny or some prophecy. And he finds a way to say no and turn yeah, it away basically. while at the same time finding a solution to their problem. Is that fair to say that's the structure for most of the episodes? Basically, yeah. Like there are plot threads that kind of start to come together throughout the season. And then, of course, there is the big wedding special at the end of the first season, which is like an hour long and it's a little bit more going on plot wise. But for the first 10 episodes, that's a lot of what's going on. Yes. Okay, so you said that you have strong opinions about fantasy tropes and the fantasy genre. Um, And I think I can already see that happening. For example, (laughs) in the first episode, The Sword in the Sheath, uh, we have someone who comes to Sig with a magical sword that is stuck in its sheath and only Sig can pull it out and ostensibly then go to slay the evil bad guy. And then the second one is Wicked Lost, where a traveler from another world has been tasked to try to slay a witch so that she can get home. So I'm clearly seeing that there's a King Arthur thing going on Mm -hmm. in the first one. And then the second one is very much like the Wizard of Oz. Yes. Talk to me about why you want to subvert these tropes. I need to start off by saying like this comes from a place of love. I'm a big fan of fantasy. I'm not just doing this to be like, oh, this is dumb and I hate it. Like, no, (laughs) I wouldn't put this much effort into something that I hate. I do it because I love all of these stories. Uh, But to me, like a part of the fun is dissecting like this is weird, right? Like we all just accept that the thing that's happening. But like this is kind of strange, actually. For example, Wizard of Oz. It is insane to me that the story of the Wizard of Oz, it starts with like, oh, I killed a woman. I'm going to be asked to kill another woman. And I don't have any questions about that. This is fine. And then also the fact that Dorothy learns at the end that like she had what she needed to go home all along the slippers. And the person who tells her that is Glinda, who is also the person who sent her the wizard in the first place. Why didn't she just tell her that at the beginning of the story? My opinion, that was a hit. That was a clear hit. Okay. Now all of the people who could usurp her are gone and she didn't have to do it. She got a puppet to do it. But that's a whole other thing. My point is... You've you've been watching Wicked, I think. Yes, I had literally just seen Wicked right before I wrote this, and it shows. I think. Why does that appeal to you? What what are you what are you trying to do when you dissect these tropes? First of all, I just think it's funny. I think it's funny to look at things from a different perspective and think, "Huh, like I didn't think of it before." But secondly, I think that there is something really fun about taking something familiar and just kind of turning it on its head a little bit. One of my friends, like she told me one time, like there's nothing people like more than a familiar story, just like a little bit to the left. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's true. Whoa. Is that red stone supposed to glow like that? It's not part of it. It just flew out of the sorceress's hand and melded with my laptop. But if it's glowing, then that means... Oh, no. One of you is the person who's going to help me kill the witch so I can get home. Oh, here we go. What? Did I say something wrong? Should I not have said witch? Is that offensive? 
I think whoever this witch is would find you attempting to kill them more offensive than whatever you call them while you do it. B, you seem like a nice person, so I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt here. Can you back up a little bit and explain to me how you got from I want to get home to you have to help me commit a murder? Oh, (laughs) I promise. It makes more sense in context. Yeah, I also like the assumption you make in the sword in the sheath that just because you pulled the sword out of the stone or out of the sheath doesn't mean you have to use it, right? Yeah. You know, Arthur might have pulled the sword out of the stone, but does that mean he's got to be the one to use Excalibur? Exactly. That's what one of my least favorite tropes is when you have a character who it's like, I am like a really cool person in my own right. I've had all these years of training. And like my role in the story is to train this rando who like just started, like just learned of their like magical whatever yesterday. And he has to like slay the dragon next week. Just let me do it. I, of course, was given the task as I am the strongest and most trustworthy of the Queen's Guard. And when I consulted the Oracle, all signs pointed to you. I have tirelessly followed the trail since, and here I am, pleading for your help. So you already have the Sacred Blade? You don't even want me to find it? Yes, I have it with me. Was that your issue? You didn't want to go looking for something we might not find? Because if that's your only reservation... No, 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 I'm, I'm still not doing this. I just want to know, if you have the Sacred Blade and you know what you have to do, then why do you even need me? I mean, why don't you do it? Me? Yeah, I mean, you're a knight. A really good one, based on how fancy your armor is. In fact, you said you were the queen's most trusted guard, right? Yes, we've known each other since we were young girls, but... So why would you, this fearsome warrior, cross the ocean to find me, a baker who has never successfully used a sword in his life, to fight a dreadlich... Something that you could not make me do for any amount of money. 1,750,000 gold pieces. What? I would fight a dreadlich for 1,750,000 gold pieces. Huh. Good to know, I guess. So I assume that we can say that, that this is the structure, that you take a familiar fantasy story and you kind of poke at it a little bit to say, hey, did you think about this? Or did you notice this? And is yeah. this a little bit silly? Basically, my process when I was like figuring out the season and also the special is I sat down and I was like, okay, what are the things I want to talk about? What are the stories I want to use? So it was like, okay, I want to do a Wizard of Oz episode. I want to do a Harry Potter episode. And I just made a list. And then I was like, okay, I have all of my gre- ingredients. What is the funniest and most narratively satisfying possible order to do these in? How can I make connections? How do I make this work? And I kind of go from there. Sword in the Stone, you know, King Arthur, that's one of the most classic, classic, classic chosen one stories. So if we're going to tell, if I'm going to tell a chosen one story or like a not chosen one story, that's (laughs) where I wanted to start. Me and King Arthur, we go way back. When I was a kid, um, when my brother was at karate lessons, my dad would read to me from like this illustrated book, uh, King Arthur stories. So it's something that, you know, I've been exposed to for a really long time. Also, when I was a kid, I was really upset that there were no girl knights in mm, King Arthur. Yeah. So I was like, the second I have a chance, I'm putting a girl knight in something. And this was my chance. So that's another reason for that. And then the reason that it was uh, this first and then Wicked second is because one, I had just seen Wicked. 
And two, it was the cleanest way to introduce all three main characters back to back. So Sig is obviously like the, the main dude. And then Happy is also like the other main character. And the third main character is B, who was introduced for the first time in episode two. There's one thing I really like about the way you're approaching these storytellings. You're trying to sell a story where nothing really happens, but that's not entirely true. You make sure, at least in the first two episodes, that Sig figures out the problem. He's not an adventurer so much as he is a detective, right? Mm-hmm. His goal here is not to is not just to stay at home because that could be very boring very quick. Mm-hmm. You know? But rather, he's like, and in order to re- get rid of these people, I need to solve their problems. And I think that's pretty smart because that does give something for him to do besides just say no. I didn't want him to be like apathetic and uncaring either. The idea of someone being like, oh, what, your entire village is going to die? Like, that's not my problem. Have a nice day. Like, that's not necessarily super likable. But if it's like, yeah. okay, I'm not going to go do that. because That sounds terrible, but I will help you go do it. I think that's like a lot more proactive and also like likable as a protagonist. So that's kind of the direction yeah. that I wanted to go in. Sig has an ability called True Sight, yes. which basically is like a magical ability to see the way things really are. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about why you gave him that ability. First of all, plot convenience a little bit. <laughs> it's like just a useful device to have. Second of all, when I was creating Sig as a character, I had another list and it's like, what's every single like chosen one quirk that I can think of? What's every single thing, like all the signs he could be born under, all the like weird abilities he can have. I want this dude to be like just ridiculously laden down with all of these tropes. And that was one of the things on the list. So when I was creating these episodes, whenever I need like a little something, I would check the list and be like, okay, I can use this one or I can use that. The true sight, like it becomes useful a couple of times throughout the first season. So it was like a good thing to give him for like narrative purposes. I mean, it lets him get information that otherwise he might have to leave the bakery in order to find out. Right. Do we get to learn more about Sig and Happy and their stories as the season goes on? Yes. In I want to say episode four, we actually meet Happy's uh, um. I'm going to use the word mother, but that's like a loose term. Um, and you kind of get a little bit more of uh, of the backstory of like what Happy's doing there. Um, because he is, you know, not a human. He's from the abyss and he is like supposed to be a corrupting Sig to bring about the end of the world. But he's actually just like being his sous chef at the bakery. Uh, so he's kind of living this uh, double life. Uh, pretending like he is uh, doing all this nefarious stuff, but he's mainly just hanging out as a sig. You had experience writing, but you had limited experience podcasting. Um, Mm -hmm. How did you begin to put this show together in terms of production and casting and all that kind of stuff? First, I did a lot of Googling. I read a lot of articles. I like specifically remember like being on the subway and on the bus on the way home from work and just like looking at these little articles, like how to start a podcast, like here are the rules, here are the guidelines. But I would say the most uh, useful thing that I did is I got in touch with Hannah, the creator of the podcast that I mentioned before in between, and she wrote me a novel, basically. I was like so shocked and like happy and and, like I was really, really psyched like to get a message back at all, let alone such a comprehensive one. And she was like super, super helpful. That was like the big font of information that I had early on that like really, really helped me. You're an African-American podcaster. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how 
that perspective has affected your creative work? Number one, my forever crusade is like, let black kids go to Narnia. You know, that's like the number one hill I'm willing to die on. Because like growing up, you read all the the classic fantasy books and it's always or almost always white kids. A lot of the time when you have books with like black protagonists, it's like the struggle books, you know, and it's like that though, that's important. Like Those are important stories to tell. And they're like, you know, true to life. But I don't always want to be reading about the struggle. Like, can't I just go to like a magic school or through a portal or something like have a normal fun adventure that doesn't have to like do with the fact, oh, I'm being oppressed for being black again. Like, cool. Right. Like, I, if I want that, like I just turn on the news. That's real life. I want to ride a dragon, you know? I tend to make the main characters of most of the things that I write Black for that reason. I think it's becoming better in recent times. It's definitely better than it used to be. But I think that there like, just historically haven't been enough fun books for, you know, African-Americans. Honestly, anyone who is, like, not white. It was kind of interesting going into writing this story. It's non-visual. It's just not a thing that would necessarily come up unless like you give it a reason to come up. It's kind of interesting because like in America, I think generally speaking, there is kind of the assumption that unless you call out what the character's race is, they're assumed to be white. That wasn't really a thing that I was thinking about when I was like writing it, because my assumption is if I write a main character, like they're probably like black usually. But it wasn't something I really thought about until I was casting. And even then, like, I didn't really want to put a limit on it because I was, well, none of this actually matters to the story. I don't want to limit who I'm casting. Whoever is the best person for the role, we'll just go with that. I kind of always think about, like, how do I want to approach that in this new medium? Or I should at least say, since I have had this experience, now I think about it when I'm writing future things. How do you measure success? So honestly, like if I make something that I can look back on and not cringe heavily at, I feel like that's a success. Like obviously in an ideal world, you want to get like, oh, all the metrics, like so many views, people are leaving all the reviews, X, Y, Z. That's, you know, in an ideal world, you're getting all of that too. Um, But just making something that I can be proud of, that that's something that like I am aspiring to all the time. I'll also say that like getting a review that's just like, I thought that was funny. Like that makes my day. I, all I want to be told is that that thing that you wrote that you were trying to be funny, it was funny. Like, thank you so much. Everyone who's ever said that to me. What do you struggle with either personally or professionally? The main thing for me is just promotion, that kind Mm. of thing, because I've never been good at talking about myself I guess and like when you have something like this a big part of it like is talking about yourself so I've kind of had to get a little bit more comfortable like you know being on Twitter and like you know responding to posts and like putting stuff out there when I have a thing that's come out all of that kind of stuff it's a thing that I'm still getting used to and like improving on but I think I've gotten a little bit better than when I initially started that's really hard I mean I struggle with that too right because I'm not a publicity guy I end up spending at least half of my time trying to market and promote my work as opposed to actually making it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand that's the game. That's what you got to do sometimes. But yeah. it's not really the skill set that I, yeah, I brought when I exactly. came to this. That's a whole you know, different skill set that I just haven't been trained to do. And I think it's a learning curve, especially for us in the indie field where you can't afford to hire a publicist or something like that. So I'm great at hyping up other people's stuff. 
You know, I love talking about all of my friends' projects or like, oh, this cool new thing I just heard. But talking about myself, like it feels weird and I don't like it. Well, you know, I'll, I'll share this, that people often ask, what's the best way to get more people listening to your show? Mm-hmm. And I can say from personal experience that for me, the number one thing that I have done that's gotten me more listeners and more attention and more visibility is helping and supporting and advertising other shows more than me tooting my own horn. I mean, I, I still do that, right? You kind of you <laughs> mix it in there, but there's no reason it can't be both. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I like about the community. Like, I like that, like, everyone is constantly, like, shouting out other people's stuff. Every, like, Sunday, there's, like, audio drama Sunday. Oh, like, you got to listen to, like, this dope new thing that, like, I just, like, listened to. And everyone's really supportive. And, like, you find, like, a lot of cool new stuff that way. And I think that it's a really cool way to make connections. What are some lessons that you have learned about making podcasts that you can share with people who might want to make their own? Number one make sure you're thinking about scope from the get-go. If you say that a big crazy thing happens in your script, later on, someone's going to have to figure out how to make that big crazy thing happen in your podcast. And you or your poor audio designer is going to be kicking you for that. Just make sure you're thinking about things before you do them. And second of all, like, don't be afraid to reach out to people. Every single person that I've talked to in the community has been like so incredibly kind. Um, Hannah, I mentioned before, Lawrence Owen, who is with a Mockery Manor and who did my theme song, like that happened just because we were talking and he was really cool and he offered to help me with that. So just nice. so many people have been so kind and so helpful. I, I know that I would be willing, like if anyone like hit up my inbox, like I'd be like, yeah, let me answer your questions if I can, you know, like don't be afraid to reach out to people. How can I ever repay you? Oh, uh, can I keep the sheath? I bet I could win some barroom bets with it. Of course. And here. Have my old sword to go with it. Uh, Not really a sword guy. But how will you bet people they can't pull the sword from the sheath with no sword to go with it? Good point. I guess I'll take them both. If you don't mind my saying so, what was and still is a major concern for me... Seems like more of a minor annoyance for you. I've never seen a sign like this before. Yeah, this happens a lot more often than I'd like. There was a lot going on when I was born. I set off basically any prophecy or chosen one alarms that are even remotely close to me. That's incredible. You are absolutely brimming with potential. The only things I want to be brimming are this shop with customers and me with warm pie. The tales in Absolutely No Adventures may be subversive, but they're not cynical. The stories and characters are charming, and while we might laugh at how we take some fantasy conventions for granted, we also, like Sig, might start thinking about ways around them. You can listen to Absolutely No Adventures on most major podcast platforms, or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or if you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our webpage at thefirstepisodeof.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. 
It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. 